Welcome to Responding to Moments, Building Powerful Communities. We are really excited to have you all here to listen to this fantastic panel of, uh, of experts. ActBlue is really proud of the work that they're doing, and so this is our chance to help spotlight that. My name is Tamara. I am the director of the Movement Issue and Charitable Organizations team at ActBlue. Anybody in here ever heard of ActBlue? Seems like there are a few of you who haven't, so I'll just pause here and say that we are a digital fundraising platform uh, that makes it possible for grassroots supporters to build change by driving donations to campaigns and nonprofits, progressive nonprofits and organizations like these. And so, um, my colleagues and I, many of whom are in the room, are very familiar with the folks on the stage and the work that they do, but I have to say, I'm really, really excited uh, about you all having the opportunity to hear directly from them about the critical work that their organizations uh, are doing. And so I'm ready to get into it, but before we do, I am gonna ask each of our panelists to briefly introduce themselves, starting with you, Olivia, and then we'll actually get into uh, the depths of the conversation, and I think you all are really gonna get a lot out of it and learn quite a bit. My name is Olivia <laughs> I'm the Director of Politics and Government Affairs at Gen Z for Change, and I'm also a full-time student here in Texas, where I was born and raised, and I'm proud of that. And I look forward to continuing activism work here in the state because it's needed very, very, very much. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ashanti Golar. I am the president of Emerge. We recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. I'm very excited to be here in Texas, where we have one of our newest affiliates. We have Becca, who is our ED of Emerge Texas. We have Regina Montoya, who is one of our national board members and resides in Dallas. And I also get to do this panel with one of my newest board members, Shannon Watts, which is extremely exciting. And I'm really excited for you all to hear more about the work that Emerge does, the amazing women in our network. And I always like to say that at Emerge, we started in 2002, and when it comes to the women's movement, people always like to describe our power as a wave, but it isn't a wave. It is truly a movement, a movement that Emerge started in 2002, a movement that Shannon has been involved with with Moms Demand, a movement that Olivia is continuing to do with Gen Z for Change. So when we're talking about women, we need to make sure we're not lowering who we are. We truly are the ones who are sustaining these movements. Hi, I'm Shannon Watts. I am the founder of Moms Demand Action. Um, I founded Moms Demand Action about a decade ago when I lived in Indiana. And uh, I started it after the Sandy Hook school shooting, thinking that we needed something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. And uh, women and moms took that idea and have turned it into the largest grassroots organization in the nation. We now have 10 million supporters. We're twice as large as the NRA. And uh, we are fighting, 
this issue culturally, legislatively, and electorally um, all across the country, not just at the federal level, but in states too, like Texas. Thank you all so much for that. I am looking forward to hearing about your diverse experiences um, and these issues. So you ready to dive in? All right, let's do it. So my first question for you all is, you know, having heard each of you talk a little bit about your work, we're clear that um, you've all helped build momentum around specific issues. So can you talk a little bit about your journey to the work? And we'll, let's start with you, Shannon. You know, I um, never imagined I'd be an activist. I had a corporate career in communications for 15 years. Um, and then I took a break because I got remarried and we were blending our families. We have five kids all together. Uh, if any of you have kids in middle school, you know that's a time when you feel like you need to be home. And um, I was actually just getting ready to go back into the workforce in 2012 when I was, you know, at home folding laundry, uh, which was like a full-time job. And I saw breaking news on the TV that there was uh, an active shooter in Newtown, Connecticut. And like so many of you, that night I went to bed in tears. I was just devastated that 20 children and six educators could be slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. And I woke up just so angry the next day. Like, I didn't know what to do with my rage. And so that's when I started this, this Facebook page that women turned into an organization. Um, but I certainly never imagined that I would be an activist. I knew nothing really about gun violence. Uh, I knew nothing really about the legislative process. Um, I certainly didn't know anything about gun violence. And... Uh, I think the lesson that I learned as a woman um, is that we have a gating factor that men often don't have, which is that we feel like we need to cross all our T's and dot all our I's before we jump in. And had I waited until I knew everything I needed to about all of those things, I still wouldn't have started Moms Demand Action 10 years later. So I'm really grateful that we built the plane as we flew it. Um, but it's certainly been a, a journey over the last decade. You know, I think one of the things, one of the important learnings um, is that mass shootings and school shootings are what get the attention in the news. It's certainly what got me off the sidelines, but it's about 1% of the gun violence in this country. Uh, the gun violence that kills 110 Americans and wounds 200 more every single day disproportionately impacts black and brown people in this country, and, and gun violence is now the leading cause of death among children in America. So um, I have learned a lot in the last decade, but most of all, that this is a complicated issue that deserves holistic solutions. Thank you. Shanti. So for me, my story actually starts when I was a young girl watching TV with my mom. She got up from the couch, and I do what young kids do. I'm going to change the channel to something I want to watch. And then that's when the little nerd in me discovered C-SPAN. And I'm like, what is this? I was just intrigued by all of these people who were arguing and fighting about making our country better. And I was like, why do I have to watch the kids' shows? I want to watch this. You got politics, you got math, you got to count votes, you got to know your geography, where people are from. And I became so intrigued with this thing called politics, even though I didn't know it was the name. But even at that young age, 
it was very clear to me that I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. I didn't see a lot of women. I didn't see a lot of people of color. And it even makes you think, can I participate in this? Can I be involved in this? But fast forward, I kept my love of politics. I had that great government teacher, Mrs. King, and she was heavily involved in politics. And she knew anyone and everyone. And that year in Nevada, my home state, we had a very high-profile Senate race. And she brought in both of the candidates to speak. My issue was the minimum wage. I worked a part-time job to have extra money. I had friends that worked part-time jobs to have extra money to support their family. I thought people should make a better living wage. So I asked the one candidate his position on the minimum wage. Of course, he was for it. I'm like, my guy. The other candidate, who was a member of Congress, I actually asked him why he voted not to support the minimum wage. And he goes, no, you're wrong, I did. I'm like, you didn't. He said, I did. I'm like, you didn't. We continue to argue back and forth. I let him know, there's this wonderful thing I can do called looking up your votes, and you did not vote for it. And he says to me, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm immediately incensed. I'm also a 17-year-old girl, so I do what 17-year-old girls do. I say, you know what? You're not that hot. Your tie is ugly, and I hope you lose. <laughs> so the next day, my teacher calls me over. I'm like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. But she said he called her and admitted that he lied to me, that he didn't vote to raise the minimum wage, and he didn't like the fact that I had called him out. And I thought, why did he lie to me? Was it because I was young, because I was a girl, because I couldn't vote? All of those things were true, but I knew I could volunteer. So I volunteered for my dude who supported the minimum wage, and that was the year that Senator Harry Reid beat John Ensign by less than 500 votes for his Senate seat. And it showed me the power that we can have if we're young, if we're girls, if we can't vote, to get other people engaged, to use that influence that we had. And I stayed super engaged in college Democrats, young Democrats. I became secretary of the Nevada Democratic Party. And I got a call one day asking me if I would come to this informational session about bringing this organization called Emerge to Nevada. And I immediately knew that I wanted in, that I wanted to see more women being elected in Nevada to be able to play a role in it. Did I know that when I came to that informational meeting that 15 years later I would be the first black woman to lead Emerge? No, I didn't. But it shows us that when we get engaged, when we keep our why, the power that we all have. And I love leading this amazing network. We trained 5,500 women to run for office. Currently, 1,200 of them are serving an elected office, from our first indigenous cabinet secretary to mayors in major cities, to the women in my home state of Nevada who created the first majority woman state legislature. So it really does start with those small moments that lead to these very large movements. Thank you. So can you share some of your points of inspiration? Oh, I am. Oh. <laughs> I mean, is this all? Nope. Nope. It's three. I mean, I could talk without one. Um, I, I love what you said about even if you can't vote. Because for me, my life kind of 
was, I feel like, preparing me to be in the position I'm in. Um, in 2012, when Moms Demand Action was founded, I was in fourth grade, where I did my first school shooting drill after the Sandy Hook shooting. And throughout my life, I experienced these different generational traumas that Gen Z has had to deal with, whether it be school shootings or, you know, the 2008 recession, watching how that affected our parents' careers, uh, the global pandemic, uh, the revitalization of the civil rights movements. These are things that were all happening during very crucial, pivotal years in my life. And when COVID hit, I was a junior in high school. I was set to go to college to be a high school English teacher. And uh, I was now stuck at home in my conservative rural Texas town, where to give you an idea of the environment that I was being raised in, uh, if you saw a school that made the news for telling students if they walked out for a moment of silence for the lives that were lost at Parkland, they'd be suspended. That was the high school I graduated from. And so I'm at home watching the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movements in 2020 after the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. I'm watching this pandemic ravage my community. I'm watching you know, the, the headlines about Latin women being given forced hysterectomies in ICE detention centers. And I was sick of it. I was so sick of watching this as a young person in this country. And I told my dad that I wanted to go out and march in Houston. And my dad, uh, partly out of fear, partly out of his political belief, said, if you go to one of those marches, don't come home. So I did what teenagers do, and I went to social media, where I started posting TikToks about why young people should be involved in politics, about why they should vote for Joe Biden in the presidential election, even though I myself would not be old enough to vote in that election. And I went from having a couple hundred followers to uh, I think 75,000 by election day. I had garnered over, I wanna say 25 million views on content surrounding the 2020 election. And I joined this coalition of creators that was started in October of 2020 called TikTok for Biden. And it was just a bunch of young people who felt very passionately about getting involved and making their voices heard. And we went from having, I think, 10 to 15 members to having over 500 creators who had a combined audience of over 500 million. And we just worked and worked and worked until the presidential election. And thankfully, what we worked for turned out in our favor. Uh, and shortly after, we officially became a 501c4 Gen Z for Change, which I am now the political director of. I've been with the organization since it was founded in 2020. And from there, I just kind of was like, okay, you know, I have this platform. I have life experiences that are valuable that a lot of people my age have dealt with. I need to use this to do good things. And shortly after, in 2021, Texas passed Senate Bill 8, which was the civil bounty law um, that ba essentially banned abortion in the state. And an organization called Texas Right to Life put out a tip line. And we used TikTok to take the tip line down. 
and it has not been put up to this day in any other state as well. And I was kind of embraced by the reproductive justice community. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome myself. So it was something that I was very familiar with because I had been dealing with reproductive health care issues from a very young age in Texas. So I had a little bit of experience dealing with uh, the lack of infrastructure there. And so I just kept posting and posting. And then, you know, I very publicly had a spat with a member of Congress and decided to once again use my platform for good to support abortion funds. And now I just keep doing that, keep trying to get Gen Z involved and try to make politics as accessible and as informational and as educational as possible because for far, far, far too long, young people in this country have not had a voice but they have also not had access to tangible information that can help inform them on what is going on in this country and how they can make a difference, not just on a federal level, but on a local level as well. Thank you. Thank all of you for that. And I, I want to take the conversation in a bit of a, a different direction. The work, the critical work that all three of you have described, you know, it requires people power, it requires long nights, it requires you know, active support, it also requires financial support. And you know, at ActBlue, we're really clear about that. It's what our mission is all about, ensuring that organizations have the infrastructure, the tools they need to reach those donors. But building communities also goes beyond that financial piece. So, um, Ken, whoever would like to talk a little bit about how you do build community around, um, around these issues. I'll go ahead and start. But first, I truly want to thank ActBlue for what you all do to support our organizations, especially women-led organizations, black and brown-led organizations. If we're talking about money, it is hard to get donations when you're a black or brown woman leading a national organization or just a woman. But Act Blue is always there for us, so thank you. I appreciate it so much. I even appreciate how easy you all make it for me to donate to candidates. I think I was teasing y'all like, made a little bit too easy, like my Amex gets mad at me because I just click, 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 but that's what we need. And for me to have a tool that I can tell our alums about that makes it so easy for them, as women candidates, that's a totally different panel about how hard it is for them to raise money, especially if they're of the new American majority, black, brown, and indigenous women, women of color, young women, unmarried women, LGBTQ women. But what they don't have in huge donors, they make up in small dollar donations. And App Blue enables that to happen. And then they're able to make up that difference with shoe leather and good messaging. So I just want to start off by saying thank you for that. And I love the fact that I also get a behind the scenes look at the Emerge Network and that community. We do the recruitment, we do the training, but we provide that ongoing network of support. When you come to our training program, you're with us for the rest of your life. We're kind of like the mafia, the mob in that way. We're going to continue to be with you because women need that. And we actually have women who have run before for office and not won 
come and do a merge and they say, this is what I was missing, not only the tools and the resources, but to be in a room with like-minded women who are going through the same things that I'm going through, who have the same challenges, the same issues, and how they all bond together. And it expands the political ecosystem. When one of our alums runs for office, it is very common to see another Emerge alum working on her campaign. Because if they're not running yet, they're able to get that extra experience. To see them throwing the fundraisers, to be out canvassing for them, that is the community that women build for each other. Like last week, I got to spend time with Oxfam. I have the privilege of serving as one of their sisters on the planet ambassadors, and we were lobbying on climate change. And it was great for me to hear firsthand from other women about the impacts of climate change and us building that community with each other. And you see that with women-led organizations. So even for me to be able to do this and get that education from other women that I'm able to bring back to Emerge. And I'm just gonna go back to the little behind the scenes things that I get to see about community because I'm all about just getting rid of that narrative that women don't get along, you can't put them in the same room together, nah, 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 like, no. I see when women lose their jobs and they have a child who has a disability, those women scrambling to help her find a new job. I get to see the fun parts where the media is finally paying attention to their race and they're posting the outfits and the shoes and they have other women to help pick them up. I get to see when one of our alums who is running for school board, a young girl in the district where she lived actually made a complaint because the kids at the school thought that it was fun to wear shirts with swastikas. And she complained, and she got in trouble for complaining. And more kids came to school with swastikas on, her sh on their shirts. She found out about it. What does she do? She activates the Emerge Network, gets the girl's cell phone number, and that girl wakes up the next morning to encouraging text messages. Those are the things that women do for each other. And now guess what? That young girl wants to run for office. So when we're talking about community, it's the great things that you see, all of us on this stage who are working together, but the small things that happen behind the scenes that really keep these movements going. Positive change. Shannon, can you... Talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah, you know, when I started Moms Demand Action, I had one skill set, frankly, that um, I brought to the table, and that was my um, career in communications. So when I started Moms Demand Action, I knew how to message. I knew how to tell a story. I knew how to create a brand, especially having worked at General Electric. Um, that's kind of what I cut my teeth on. And so when we started to build Moms Demand Action, and I get asked all the time, like, why is it not parents demand action? Um, to Ashanti's point, women, there are about 500,000 elected positions in this country. 
Women hold about 17%, 20% at this point of 500,000 elected physicians. We're less than 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs, right? So we're not making the policies and the laws that protect our families and our communities. So as soon as there's parity, we can change the name to Parents Demand Action. Um, but in the meantime, Women and moms are going to pull the levers of power that we have, and that is using our votes. We're the majority of the voting public, and our voices, right? We also make up the majority of, of the public in the country. So it's really important to have a brand that makes women feel empowered, and, and in the case of Moms Demand Action, empowered to take on the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that has ever existed in this country, which is, by the way, full of gun extremists that show up at our events armed with AR-15s and surround us while we're there, like with baby carriages and such. So um, you really do have to have a brand that makes women feel like badasses, like they can do anything, like they can stand up to these armed extremists and say, not in my community, you won't. When we poll our volunteers, and I'm a full-time volunteer and have been now for over a decade, but when you poll our volunteers and we say, like, what not only brings you to this work, particularly in places like Texas and the Carolinas and Georgia and Mississippi and on and on in states where this is a tough issue, they tell us two things. First, they say, um, I feel like I'm winning. This is a good use of my time. I can volunteer and do this work on any issue in any place, but when I walk into a meeting for Moms Demand Action, it's a bunch of type A women who use my time wisely. I don't have a lot of it. So thank you for making me feel like what I'm doing has impact. Um, we have a phrase in our organization called naptivism, which means that if you put your kid down for a nap for an hour and you want to be an activist, we can help you make a difference. Um, and and I know that for some of you who aren't in the weeds on this issue, it can feel a little tough, like we're not winning, but I assure you that if you were involved in this issue every single day, you would know that you know we've passed hundreds and hundreds of good gun bills, including a federal bill for the first time in a generation. Uh, we stopped the NRA's agenda 90% of the time in state houses across the country for the last seven years, and on and on, right? So the second reason that our volunteers, this community that we have, say that they come and they stay and they keep doing this work is because they feel like they have found their people. Even in states where this issue is really tough, they feel like they find like-minded women. Um, and we're not just moms anymore, we're mothers and other students and survivors. But you know, when I think about that idea of finding your people, I actually think of, of in Texas here, um, years back we had a volunteer, she found out she had stage four colon cancer in her mid-30s, she had two babies, and she was a teacher, and that's why she got involved in this issue, because it was so important to her to keep guns out of schools. And as her cancer progressed, um, you know, there were photos online of her in hospice, and she was just surrounded by Moms Demand Action volunteers that she had only met through this activism. She didn't know these women before she got involved in Moms Demand Action, and they were there holding her hand when she passed away. So there really is something to be said for creating not just activism that, that I think sometimes is joyless, but an activism and a community that is joyful and hopeful because people will not stay and continue to do the work if they don't feel that optimism. That really resonates with me. I'm, what I'm hearing from both of you is that relationship building is at the core 
right, of, of these communities and each of your organizations that you've been working so hard to sustain. Um, can you share a little bit about your experience with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's especially different for young people in this country. And um, there are a lot of organizations, just the larger scheme that have this issue of just categorizing us as youth. I'm not just a young person, I'm a young, openly queer Latin woman, and every single one of my identities deserves to be acknowledged and recognized in my work. And so working at Gen Z for Change, it's, it's very pivotal for us that you know, we're not just a youth organization. We're not just mobilizing youth. We're working with reproductive rights organizations. We're working with gun violence prevention. We're working with climate change prevention. We're working with LGBTQ plus rights advocacy. Every single group, every single identity needs to be considered when we're making a plan to do certain things and to continue on with our mission. Um, and so for me, that's been really important finding people in the org um, to, to be a voice of that, especially being from Texas. It's very important to me to find solidarity with other organizers here because there has become this narrative nationally that Texas is a waste of time or that it, it's just, you know, a lost cause. And that's not true. And, you know, there are a lot of really powerful, inspirational Texans who are working right now to, to make a difference and make a change. Uh, I'm going to call out my friend Zoe Quadri, who was just elected to Austin City Council, who's here. First AAPI member elected. Um, and that's, that's the kind of important things that are happening that we need to recognize, is that there are positive things happening that we should celebrate. Um, I don't agree with uh, all of the decisions that have been made by you know, the current uh, administration, but there's progress to be made and it's important to remind people of that. But it's also important to find solidarity in pride in where we come from, even if there's other people who seek to change that narrative. Um, and often when I'm talking about Texas in particular, because I just have such a unending passion and love for my state. And my dad always says that, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. My family was here long before, uh, you know, we had the current governmental leadership that we have. And there have been incredible leaders who have come from this state, like Barbara Jordan, Ann Richards, you know, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. Those things came from Texas. And it's really important for me to remind people of that and then remind people, yeah, you need to address the diversity in the room and not just say the youth. Um, because for one, that's how you feel disregarded and forgotten. Like you're not entitled to my vote. You earn my vote by doing the right thing for people or you earn my activism by showing that you care about the people that we're advocating for. Um, and so recognizing identities and finding people who share those interests and those passions of you know, protecting my home and where my ancestors are from has been incredibly important to me in my work. Thank you for that, Olivia. And I actually want to build on that a bit as we shift to getting into specifics about these nuanced issues um, that you all advocate for. And you know, I know that you are looking at elections that are happening this year. You are looking at the role that the youth 
um, will play in uh, advocating and being activists within the reproductive rights space. Can you share some anecdotes or some uh, campaigns or some things that you're aware of that are happening that you want the folks who are here with us today to know about? There is an incredibly important uh, Supreme Court race happening right now in Wisconsin that will determine the ideological makeup of the court there in the state, one of the few that has that as an elected position. Uh, and ultimately, it is potentially going to determine one of two things. It's going to determine whether or not the uh, pre-Roe abortion ban that is currently in place in the state will be repealed by the Supreme Court of that state. And it could potentially decide the election results in 2024 because that, that court came dangerously close in 2020 to throwing out ballots that people had cast constitutionally. Uh, and that's happening on April 4th. Early voting starts, I believe, on March 21st. And I believe her name is Janet. I'm blanking on her last name, but she is uh, the liberal who is running, who is pro all of the things that I am. And if you haven't already, I would look into it and make a donation if you can. If not, volunteer, retweet, share. Because um, it will determine not just the state of Wisconsin, what happens there in the future, but it will ultimately, it could also affect the entire country. Thank you for that. So those kind of moments uh, provide opportunities for your organizations to be responsive in real time. Um, Ashanti, I know that... Uh, the row goings on last year were really an opportunity for Emerge to reach supporters and, and galvanize folks. Can you talk a little bit about what it took to be able to be responsive? Because I think folks see organizations and take for granted what it requires mm -hmm. to be able to be nimble and to have the infrastructure in place to respond. Yes. And it's one of the things that I love about our organization is that we are one of those organizations who wants to meet the moment. We just don't shrug and say, oh, we've never played in that lane before. Let someone else deal with it. Like, I love astrology. If anyone else loves astrology, I'm like, I really need the organization's like birth date because I'm pretty convinced we're a mutable sign. Just the way that we are able to evolve. And one of the things that really prepared us to meet the row moment was the 2016 moment when we did not expect for Secretary Clinton to lose that race. But what we saw the next day was women who woke up and said, okay, if not Hillary, then who? It has to be me. I have to be the one to step up and run. And when we had the initial leak of the Dobbs decision, the team immediately came together and we said, this is going to be another moment. And we immediately just started to mobilize. There was just no doubt in our mind that the leak was fake or this wasn't going to happen. We just prepared for it. So that meant updating our website so that if you cared about abortion rights, there was an opportunity for you to connect with Emerge. We did one of our step four trainings for women who were interested in running for office. We got together with our partners in this space to have a conversation about 
why this was important and looking at the different elected offices that would have an impact on abortion rights because so many people don't realize that it can go from the state legislature to the mayor to the coroner. In some states, the coroner has an impact on this in doing that education. And we saw that women responded to it very well. They stepped up to run for office. And because of that energy, we knew that the election in 2022 wasn't going to be as horrible as the media was presenting it. I was just not convinced that because milk went up 17 cents that women were just going to be fine with not voting and having people have more control over our bodies. And yet again, we saw the new American majority show up because as Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says, you can't pull transformation. And they need to be looking to the people who are fueling these movements and the people at Emerge that we want to put their name on the ballot. With looking at the judiciary, that is our next ground zero. And we pivoted to create our new training program called Gavelin, which is all about training women to run to be jurists because we need them at the state Supreme Court level, at the local level. Just overall, when we look at women in law enforcement positions, we are severely underrepresented. We wonder why our criminal justice system looks the way that it does, because it's still white men making these decisions. And if you wanna change the criminal justice system, you have to change the faces of criminal justice reform. And that means getting more women involved, especially women as jurists. So that is where we are at with continuing to evolve as an organization and to meet these moments that are happening. We like to say Emerge alums are the defenders of democracy because our democracy is being attacked right now. And I love the fact that we continue to talk to women, to meet women where they are. And please, I don't want anyone to get it twisted. Women are still running for office. We busy at Emerge. They want to make sure that they are making change and we will continue to be here to help them make it. Thank you for sharing. And I just, I read up on it and was excited to hear about the Seated Together training program that you have. Yes. So I have special interest in hearing you talk a little bit about I that. I will also talk about Seated Together. Seated Together is our first advanced candidate training program to have black women who are current elected officials run for higher office. We think that is extremely important. Women are constantly told once they get elected, they just need to be happy where they are. I don't believe in that bloom where you're planted philosophy. That's another thing that the patriarchy teaches us. And it's another thing that Emerge is breaking down. So we started our first program focusing on black women and really giving them the tools, the resources, and the skills to transition from running on that local level to the statewide level or the federal level. Our initial cohort has been extremely successful. It has given us Congresswoman Amelia Sykes from Ohio. It has given us Joanna McClinton, the first black woman speaker in the Pennsylvania State House, the first woman speaker, and London Lamar, who went from being the youngest woman in the Tennessee State House to the youngest woman in the Tennessee State Senate. And we have other women in that cohort who are do doing good things. I'm not gonna get in trouble by making 
making their announcements for them, but they are extremely fabulous. And we have the second cohort coming, and we already have plans to expand that to focus on our API women, our Latina women, our indigenous women, because again, going back to what we were talking about earlier with community and network, us giving them that space to talk about the consultant who tells you, just speak English, don't speak Spanish. The consultant who's like, mm, black woman, don't change your hair. Choose one hairstyle because the voters won't recognize you. Things that are literally said. Just, just do this for that donor. You need to like conform for the donor. Dial and it's back. being like, right, no. I'm here to represent my district because Adamers, who are out our programs, it was important for me when I came on as president that I was creating community-driven candidates who knew their community, who understood their community, but teaching them from day one to love that diversity of their community and how powerful it was and to bring it to their campaign and that they don't have to change for anyone. As long as they show up for their, as their authentic self, the voters will show up too, which is why we had a 71% win rate in 2022. Love it. Love it. Shannon, you alluded to this earlier, but the comprehensive federal gun safety legislation uh, that passed last year that I'm not certain folks really understand what happened uh, and how important that was and want to give you the opportunity to talk about how you all were prepared to, um, to be a part of that push. Yeah, so in 2012, after the shooting at Sandy Hook School, um, lawmakers in Congress said, let's try to pass something called the Manchin-Toomey Bill. This was a, a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation put forward that would have closed the background check loophole. Right now in, in this country, um, unlicensed sellers can sell a gun with no background check. Um, not licensed dealers, but unlicensed. And that failed by a handful of votes in the Senate. You know, a decade ago, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Democrats. Uh, today, none do. That's a seismic shift in American politics. But some of the Democrats who voted against the Manchin-Toomey bill said, um, and for example, Heidi Heitkamp, who no longer has her job, but um, she voted against the Manchin-Toomey bill because she said she was hearing seven to one against it from her constituents. And our organization said, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that never happens again. Lawmakers can say they, they oppose it for their own wrong reasons, but they can never say that they think their constituents do, because polling shows that they don't, right? And so after the horrific summer that we had where you had shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde and just the spike in daily gun violence, there really was not a snowball's chance in hell that federal legislation would pass. I mean, it just was not something that was on our radar. But we said, let's have rallies. Let's drive millions of calls into Congress. Let's use the slogan, don't look away. And that's what we did all summer. And finally, we started to gain traction because now all Democrats had F ratings from the NRA. And because we had gotten some Republicans to be on the right side of this issue. In fact, 15 Republicans voted for that bill, which is, again, a seismic shift in American politics, and it shows that we're moving the needle. This legislation is 
one step forward. It is a baby step on a very long journey, but it did unlock tens of millions of dollars for community violence intervention programs. It did give states money to implement and incentivize red flag laws. And very importantly, it closed something called the boyfriend loophole in this country, which means domestic abusers, convicted domestic abusers, are now considered prohibited purchasers, even if they're misdemeanors. And that was not something that existed before this legislation. So this, this bill will save thousands and thousands of lives, but there is so much more that needs to be done at the federal level. We're all only as safe as the closest state with the weakest gun laws. Um, but to Ashanti's point, part of the reason that we're having more and more success in legislatures and even in Congress is because we are electing our own volunteers and survivors to office, 140 of them just in November. Um, some of you may be familiar with Congresswoman Lucy McBath in Georgia. She was a Moms Demand Action volunteer and then a spokeswoman. She's a very dear friend, and every time we spoke, I would say, Lucy, when are you going to run for office? And finally, after the Parkland tragedy, she called me and she said, it's time for me to run. Lucy's son, Jordan Davis, was a 17-year-old black teen. He was shot and killed by a white man at a, at a, a gas station in Florida because this white guy said his music was too loud. He opened fire on Jordan's car and killed Jordan. And Lucy immediately became an activist. Um, and the first thing she did as a congresswoman, by the way, she won a position held by Republicans for 30 years. It's Newt Gingrich's old seat. Uh, the first thing she did was to help pass federal gun safety legislation through the House and has been an amazing champion. So, uh, you know, I always say when uh, you close the, the, the door on a Moms Demand Action volunteer, they come in the window. And uh, they're starting to come in the windows of the offices of lawmakers. Thank you so much. I have a few more questions, but I'm not going to be selfish. I told you all this is a panel of experts. I was intentional about using that language, and I want to make sure you all have an opportunity to ask questions. I think we have about 15 minutes left, so let's get into it. If you have a question, please come and queue up at the microphone, and uh, we'll take your question. And I'll give you a moment in case you need some time to to think of one or clarify what's knocking around in your head. Can you start by sharing your name and where you're from? Yes, my name is Lena Orr. Um, I live in the DC metro area and I worked for the Department of Defense for 25 years and moved back to where I'm from, which is uh, Texas, because um, my mom was in her 90s and needed the support there. And, um, but so we sort of built, we live in San Antonio. So we build up a, a, getting involved with certain things. But, um, the one thing that I felt is as an outsider all of a sudden when I arrived in San Antonio, and I still do. Uh, and one of the things that I see, um, is the level of misinformation. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is permeating, not uh, in an, and it has caused a lot of suspicion. And the effort to talk to some of your neighbors and your folks, uh, and, and to organize or to try to think or, you know, kind of gear the support 
doesn't seem to be readily available. Okay. Um, this is a very, in some ways, Texas is very uh, locally focused. So, like myself, who's been away for since 1975, and all of a sudden I come back, um, it's it's become a very challenging thing. So I'm looking to see where. Um, some of the local issues, for example, I'm looking at the fact that the border areas where I'm from and all in areas of uh, San Antonio and South Southwest is not is turning away from uh, a more progressive view. I think this they are becoming very uh, conservative, and I'm um, looking for a way to get involved to see if I can stem that kind of. Um, turn. So what can I do? <laughs> Did any thoughts come up for you as a, oh, yeah. as a Texan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people, people talk about the border all the time, and I, I have attended many panels and conferences where now I have heard Democrats who represent border communities say, well, we don't want Operation Lone Star to end because it's stimulating the economies of the cities that we represent. And to me, that's not an indicator that people in those communities approve of what's going on. That's an indicator that the government in the state has failed those communities, that now they have to depend on that because there's a lack of infrastructure investment. And so when talking about the disinformation, the misinformation, honestly, for me, it's uh, digital literacy is a, a very important part of it, is knowing that the information you're getting is accurate. Uh, here in Texas, you know, the Texas Tribune is great, Houston Chronicle, um, and having conversations is really important. You know, the two biggest motivating factors for people when it comes to politics is their friends and family. Uh, and even if you don't agree, having those conversations is really important. I'm the only left-leaning person in my family, and, you know, my dad voted for Trump twice. And now, because of these years of conversations where even though we fundamentally disagree, I've seen the shift happen because he'll say something like, well, did you know that this happened at the border? And I'm like, actually, Dad, that didn't happen. Here's the article that shows that didn't happen. And now he's like, oh, yeah, that, that didn't happen. That was fake news that I saw. And I was like, it was. Um, and so being able to show the, as young people call it, the receipts, the proof of what you're saying, but also having the patience to have those conversations, which I understand some people don't. Uh, I do, because I was raised here. Um, but honestly, just being as genuine and kind and straightforward as you can be uh, is what I've found works, and making sure that you're going to official news places uh, and reading the articles all the way through. Don't just read the headlines. That is a huge problem that happens here. Um, and also following elected officials, not just from where you represent, but in other areas as well. I know that, um, you know, Congressman Joaquin Castro, he represents San Antonio. He does an excellent job of having information about the area and about the border on all of his pages at all time that's factual and non-biased, which I think is really important. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thank you all for the work that you do and for being here to share with us. Um, it can often feel, I think, like um, progressives and folks who are left-leaning are sort of uh, in response mode all the time and that the agenda is often being set. Um, so I'm wondering sort of how you 
um, think about um, making moments that need to be responded to as opposed to just sort of always putting catch up or um, reactive. Uh, make, yeah, not being reactive. I mean, I'll start. I think I talked about that with really seated together and gavel in. We didn't wait for things to get really bad with the judiciary. Even with Gavel In, we started piloting it years ago in several of our affiliates. We started in my home state of Nevada, and you actually had the Republican governor back then appointing emerge alums to vacancies because they were that good. What it is is us taking that step back and looking towards the future. At Emerge, we have a 2035 vision. I didn't create a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. I wanted to see what is the country going to look like in the next 15 years, in the next 25 years, in the next 35 years. And when you're doing that, that's how you really get ahead of it. And a key part is looking at the map and, in my opinion, just stop seeing red, blue, and purple. Before I was the president of Emerge, I was the political director, and I oversaw our expansion to the south because I wasn't just seeing Texas as a red state, Georgia as a red state. I saw opportunity because I knew there were good Democrats there. I knew there were good Democratic women there, and we have to make the investment. We always want to chase what's shiny and new and what's going to give us that great moment, that you know, immediate payoff, and we're like, yay, look at what we did. But what I like to say at Emerge is the way we do our work, we're creating long-lasting legacies of change. Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Colorado have majority women state legislatures because of Emerge alums. In Virginia in 2017, I don't know if you all remember that time cover that said the Avengers, a majority of those women went through the Emerge Virginia boot camp, and they flipped over a dozen seats from white Republican men to diverse Democratic women because we looked at the districts and they said, we said, all right, if Secretary Clinton can win this district, they will vote for a Democratic woman, and we know that they are there. States like South Carolina have their first openly LGBTQ sheriff, and that's because we knew that we could do it. So we have to step, sit back, stop thinking cycle to cycle, and how are we creating those long-lasting legacies of change? And it's what I'm committed to doing at Emerge. I'm so lucky I have great board members who also support that vision, but I also have amazing team members, especially our executive directors on the ground, who implement it and know that this is how we get things done. Just sustaining for organizations, having to kind of strike that balance between Sustain, oh, sustainability right? and growth at the yeah. same time, yeah. very hard, yeah. very hard. Yep. It is delicate, but we have to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time because I could stay where it's just very comfortable yeah. and we just do our signature program, but we have boot camps, we have see it together, we have gavel in, we have step forwards. You have to evolve because believe me, the other side, they are evolving. We may not like it, 
but they are thinking towards the future and what their next moment is going to be. Thinking about your comms expertise, uh, Shannon, and just what's required to ensure that you've got, again, this word, the infrastructure, to have folks be able to respond to the moment and have folks do what Ashanti was just speaking about. Um, it is no small feat, and it's a reason I just want to encourage all of you, whether it's supporting these fantastic organizations or looking locally um, at what folks are doing in your own communities, that funding is, is key. Hi, thank you so much for being here. My name is Stephanie. Uh, I'm with Blue actually. <laughs> And I just have a question regarding coalitions. I know that this is something really powerful in the movement, and I just want to see what are the creative ways that you can work with other organizations in the movement to really bring it forward. Uh, I would love to hear if you have any examples as well. Yeah, I think um, the biggest example that comes to mind is um, Starbucks had been union busting excessively uh, to different stores across the country, and Gen Z for Change realized that they were using online uh, job applications to hire scab workers. And so our coders created codes that would send in fake job applications to prevent these stores from union busting. Um, and so we partnered with Starbucks Workers United and we were able to send in hundreds of thousands of fake job applications to different stores across the country. Uh, including a job application for a lawyer familiar with workers' rights laws uh, that they were looking to hire specifically to protect them from legal repercussions from union busting. Uh, and so because of that, we worked with Starbucks Workers United, and uh, when Roe fell and we did you know, abortion rights fundraising, we partnered with Jane's Due Process as a thought partner to kind of give us inspiration and ideas on different things that we could do, whether it just be fundraising or um, our Crisis Pregnancy Center project, where we had a code send in genuine reviews on Google and Yelp that said this place does not offer abortion services. And a result of that is... Yelp actually now has a disclaimer on crisis pregnancy centers that say, you know, there might not be a licensed medical professional on site when you're seeking to get care. Um, so just working on different issues that are important and also reaching out instead of just, you know, reacting me like, hey, what do you need help with? Um, has become a really important part of what we do. Coalitions are huge. I say at Emerge all the time, we cannot do this work alone. We need other organizations. You heard 500,000 elected offices across this country. 500,000 people who get to shape our lives with a stroke of a pen. We need all of us in that together. And Shannon, Moms and Man, is a great partner. She talked about Congresswoman McBath. She's also an Emerge alum. Three of our executive directors are from the Moms and Man Network. So we also hire Moms and Man members in addition to being our alums. All of the people that you're talking to from like Gen Z to change, hoping they come to emerge. It's the coalition is really the funnel of how we get people involved. And we have to talk about the other organizations that are in this space in order to let people know that there is room for them, that there is space for them, that we want for them to be involved because they're 
definitely is that stigma in politics that you have to come from a certain political family or you have to have this degree or you have to be a certain type of person to even be able to sit on the stage. And you've heard all of our stories and we all just really have our why of why we want to do this. And coalitions are great. And I know they're saying time, but I have to thank At Blue again, because in addition to Emerge, I do the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, which is all about letting black and brown and indigenous women, especially young women from those groups, know that there is a space for them. And I love when our partners say, oh my gosh, Ashanti, someone came to me from like the Brown Girls Guide and at Blue has been a huge supporter of that. So that is how all of this comes full circle. Please join me in a round of applause for these fantastic panelists. Thank you all so much for being here.